There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. I'm really rich. I don't need banks. We have a lot of cash. I built an amazing company. I'm a very rich person. It turned out that I'm much richer than people think. I'm smarter than they are. I'm richer than they are. I became president and they didn't. Are you though, Donnie? Are you really that rich? Because according to New York State Attorney General Tish James, you've been lying about that too. Plus, another pair of Proud Boys find out how much time they'll be spending behind bars for throwing in their lot with serial liar and attempted insurrectionist Donald Trump. And later, Supreme Court justices file new financial disclosure forms. Declarants, remember, to list all those fancy trips and vacations paid for by his billionaire buddy Harlan Crow this time? Stick around to find out. But we begin tonight with fact versus fiction, reality versus a reality show. When it comes to Donald Trump, you know which side he tends to come down on. Trump seems convinced that he can make people believe the world is actually flat. His embrace of lies, conspiracy theories and alternative facts underscores most of his legal woes. In court filings today in the Georgia election interference case, Trump pleaded not guilty and opted to waive his right to an arraignment next week. He also requested to sever his case from any of his 18 co-defendants who are demanding speedy trials. Also today, the judge in the Georgia case, Scott McAfee, announced cameras would be allowed in the courtroom for all hearings and proceedings. They will also be live streamed on YouTube. So that's fun. As to Trump's avoidance of his arraignment, perhaps he's too busy preparing more of those bizarre and random social media video posts that he's been posting that show that he continues to live in the upside down. In one, he thanks the heavily Democratic city of Atlanta and three majority black neighborhoods for supposedly showering him with support. Of course, there's no evidence uh, that there was even a sprinkle of support from the same city he repeatedly called horrible and crime infested. In one of the neighborhoods he called out, voted for Joe Biden with roughly 90 percent of the vote, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Speaking of the reality show version of the world Trump lives in, it's actually a different legal case that threatens to put an end to one of his longest running fictions, that he's actually a real billionaire. It gets far less attention, but the civil case from New York Attorney General Letitia James' office is fascinating with claims that Trump and his company defrauded banks and business associates by inflating his net worth and the value of his assets by billions of dollars on financial statements. That trial is scheduled for October 2nd. Now, remember, it was Trump's supposed business success as portrayed in his reality show, The Apprentice, that propelled him into the White House. We now have the transcript for the deposition Trump gave in the New York case. And here's the thing. Far from being a very stable genius, Trump is really not that good at depositions. When he's forced to answer questions under oath, it usually doesn't go well. During his deposition in the E. Jean Carroll case, for instance, he not only doubled down on his famous Access Hollywood comments, but even after making the abhorrent defense that he couldn't have had, he couldn't have sexually assaulted Carroll because she was not his type. 
he confused an image of her with his former wife, Marla Maples. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. That's Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point, your wife. And the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. Ivana. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that that's Carol? Because it's very blurry. I mean, it's very blurry, the picture. <laughs> So when Trump agreed to sit down, what turned out to be a seven-hour deposition this April with the New York Attorney General's office, you can guess how well that went for him. Trump claimed that he could not have been involved in committing business fraud when he was in the White House because he was too busy saving the world from nuclear holocaust. Quote, I was very busy. I was, uh, I was considered the most important job. It was considered the most important job in the world, saving millions of lives. I think you would have nuclear holocaust if I didn't deal with North Korea. I think you would have a nuclear war if I weren't elected. And I think you might have a nuclear war now if you want to know the truth. <laughs> and when it came to his annual financial statements, in which James says he overvalued his properties by up to $2.2 billion each year, it looks like Trump copied the defense that his recent pal and fired Fox host Tucker Carlson's lawyers used in a slander suit against Tuckums. That trial, uh, that Trump never felt that the documents would even be taken seriously. Trump, I never felt that these statements would be taken very seriously because you open it up and right at the beginning of the statement, you read a page and half of stuff saying, go get your own accounting, go get your own this, go get your own that. A lawyer for the New York Attorney General's office asked so why did you get these statements prepared? Trump responded, I would say more for maybe myself just to see the list of properties. I think more for myself than anything else. And if that wasn't enough to get him off the hook, Trump said, don't trust him. Just listen to his friends. Quote, friends of mine have said, you're the most honest person in the world. So we've done a good job. Don't get credit for it. That's OK. <laughs> I'm joined now. I'm joined now by Choice Vance. MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. And Tim O'Brien, MSNBC political analyst and the executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion, who I think was very much enjoying uh, <laughs> the Trump deposition. Tim, you've, you've deposed Trump before. I, why does he keep doing it? it? How did it go when, he, when you did it? Well, first off, when, when Donald Trump says I'm the most honest person <laughs> in the world, know that he's lying. Um, and the other interesting thing I was just thinking about as you, you know, as you ran that is when, when Trump sued me for my book, at the core of it, there was a lot of issues he was uncomfortable with. But part of it was he claimed that he was defamed because the, bo the book intentionally lowballed his wealth, okay. which I didn't do. We, we never got to court. The, the case was dismissed. Yeah. Um, but during the course of that, he insisted he had given me one of these documents, one of these statements of financial condition right. that are at the core of, of Tish James's prosecution, New York State Attorney General. And during the course of that deposition, he lied that I had received one of them. I never had. <laughs> but he also talked during that deposition about how these were definitive outlines of how much it was worth that I should have taken them seriously. 
And then during my deposition, they passed one of those across the table to me. And his lawyer said, would you take this seriously? And I said, well, actually, I wouldn't. And they said, why? And I said, because in the opening pages of this document, it says it hasn't been audited by his accountants, and it doesn't conform with standard accounting principles. So it's very interesting to see him now say, you shouldn't take this seriously because it doesn't conform to standard accounting principles, and my accountants didn't sign off on it, and I don't really take them seriously. I just treated it like a list of properties, which is completely untrue. He used these things to convince the media that he was wealthier than he was. And and the reason that's so important to him, the reason you see him on these tapes talking about, I'm much richer than other people, I'm much smarter than other people, I'm president and you're not, is because he's deeply insecure. He's insecure about his intellect. He's insecure about his success. He's insecure about his wealth. He's insecure about his physicality. You name it, he's insecure about it, which is why he always boasts about it. I think what's interesting now in the current, you know, prosecution that he's facing on this issue. It's the first time he's been held to account Mm -hmm. rigorously, I think, other than our lawsuit in, you know, in a legal setting in which he gets himself in trouble when he lies under oath or he's presented with documents that contradict the truth. Yeah. I mean, and Joyce, it is not illegal to plus up your wealth to try to make yourself look good, right? It, it is when I, I can imagine it's not illegal to lie about being richer than you are to get, you know, marks to vote for you and make you president because they think the apprentice is real and not like fake like cribs. But he did that. But the, he's in trouble anyway, right? So he did things like in this deposition say that he's, his properties are like the Mona Lisa's of properties. So he's still lying even in the depositions. He says um, his brand is worth billions. Quote, Donald Trump, the biggest thing is not included. It's my brand. My lawyers never bring it up. But the brand is the biggest. And because you can you can double, triple my statement. But my brand is if I wanted to create a good statement, I would put I start with sentence one. My brand is worth billions and billions of dollars. Why is it? Why is he in trouble, at least in a civil case, for lying about his brand when it is not legal technically to just lie and say you're richer than you are? Right. So that's exactly the right question to ask to help us understand this lawsuit. It's brought by New York's attorney general. As you point out, Joy, it's a civil case. And it alleges that Trump fraudulently used fraudulent practices, what Tim is referring to on on these uh, accounting statements, in order to obtain benefits when he was trying to get, for instance, insurance or trying to value properties in order to get loans. So she is, in essence, alleging that he engaged in improper business practices and should be penalized in terms of his ability to do ongoing business in the state of New York. That's the ultimate liability that he faces here. And so, Tim, I mean, there's I mean, there is talk of what she could do, right? The sanctions, right? She could stop him from doing business in the state of New York, which is still the core of where his businesses are. Um, but if it also comes out in the course of this trial that he's lying about all of it, I would wonder if people would want to invest in these future golf course businesses. I mean, he mainly sells his name. He doesn't own as many buildings as people think he owns. He actually mostly licensing, quote unquote, his brand. Um, you know, the, just on this whole issue of him insisting that his brand has incredible value, <laughs> No accountant includes brands right. in the value of some in, when they assess someone's net worth. It's a subjective number. It's not included. There's no actual demonstrable evidence other than condo sales 
many years ago that the Trump name actually enhanced the value of anything he touched. Right. And there's a lot of evidence recently with people taking his name off of buildings that has actually now Correct. become a ball and chain. So putting that issue aside, um, New York is the core of his wealth. Most of his wealth is tied up in a small handful of buildings. The golf courses and even the licensing stuff doesn't really account for most of his wealth. And he built that wealth on his father's his father's money in New York. And the, I think the real threat in the Tish James case is she can prevent him ultimately from doing business in the, in the, in the state and city of New York. And he's, he's lied about it before. I mean, uh, Fahrenheit uh, has done a great deal of work at the New York Times um, about things like him lying about how many rooms are in some of his properties. He'll say there are you know, 55 rooms and there are 35. Like he's, he does have a history of just sort of making David Fahrenheit, of just making things up about his businesses and saying that they're worth a lot of money. But that has actually gotten him by. He's gotten bank loans, even though he doesn't pay back loans. He's gotten more people to continue investing and buying properties, you know, buying his condos, saying they're worth more and they're more valuable than they are. He's gotten away with it for so long. I wonder, you, you, you know the guy a little bit, what would it do to him if just this if, if all this trial does is expose that all of that is B.S., that he really ain't that rich and that none of it was true? What do you think that does to him? It's a deep scarring wound for him because yeah. it's, it's he his self-esteem is so tied up in this idea that he has more money than he has. He is comfortably rich by most people's standards, Absolutely. but not by his own because he has this well of unquenchable, unquenchable need to be seen a certain way. And he's not going to get past that. I think that. The hurdle facing Tish James in her in her case is that she's going to have to prove that the banks were damaged. And I think that I don't think most banks simply relied on this little ginned up statement that Trump and his CFO, Ellen Weisselberg, pushed across the table to them. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it could go very differently yeah. if it goes to court. Well, talk about that a little bit, Joyce, you know, because it, it is she still has to prove this case, right? And I mean, there, there's been, like I said, David Fahrenheit and others have done a lot of journal, uh, work on it. Tim has done a lot of work on it. People kind of know this, the, the, the basics of the fact that he makes up things about his wealth. How hard of a hurdle do you think, do you think it will be for her to actually prove liability and be able to sanction him? So she clearly believes that she has this one right between the eyes. Earlier this week, she filed a motion for partial summary judgment. That asks the judge to remove some of these claims that she's made from consideration by the jury and defined as a matter of law that he has actually engaged in fraudulent reporting. That would leave for the jury, if the court grants that motion, this issue that Tim is focusing on, whether there's some way of showing that the banks relied on these statements. And James has put forward theories that cover that ground. It's actually not a straight up damages theory. It's more of a reliance theory that they're entitled to rely on these filings that are made with them that they did in certain cases to their detriment, offering loans that might not have been offered had those statements not been put into play, talking about different divisions in Deutsche Bank that Trump went to to get loans when he had problems in certain parts of that institution. It's complicated. It's detailed. That's why these cases go to trial. If they were easy, they would be resolved in advance. Yeah. So that's not to pretend that she has an easy case, but she has a strong one. Let, let's talk about Jared Kushner for a minute, because this is the Trump organization. And obviously, you know, it, it, this is Trump's issue. Uh, but Jared Kushner is actually getting some attention now. Jamie Raskin um, and, and Democrats in the House are now actually asking um, 
to look into the $2 billion that he got. Um, and he's asked Republicans— From the Saudis. From the Saudis, right? So he leaves Affinity Partners, his company. It's a $3 billion private equity fund. Kushner founded after he left the White House. They got most of their funding from the Saudi government, $2 billion. Um, they're now—there's there's some peeking into that a little bit. Yeah, they're peeking into it because Jared Kushner in the investment world's a junior mint. You know, no one, no one would be giving Jared Kushner $2 billion unless he had proximity to the former president of the United States and that you're placing a bet that he'll have proximity to a future president of the United States. Right. Or that there already was some quid pro quo. Right? Or there are like, like, for example, arms that went to Saudi Arabia when most of the Congress was against it and Trump approved it and actually overrode congressional opposition to an arms deal with the Saudis. Yeah. Um, uh, I think both uh, Steve Mnuchin and the former Treasury Secretary, who also got a billion, who also got money from the Saudis, both he and Jared are very open to an investigation around influence peddling in the past, yeah. in the present, and with a guard against the future, because you don't want a White House that can be bought off yeah. by somebody who can mask a bribe as an investment in someone's investment fund, which I think is at, at the core of this issue with Jared Kushner. Really quickly to say with you for a minute, Tim, I mean, he's made like 40 something of these videos. He's basically sitting in front of a camera, maybe even as we speak, making these wild videos, you know, thanking Iowa, you know, homeschoolers and doing all this stuff. Which do you think is freaking him out more? The exposure of the reality of him not being a billionaire in the Tish James case or going to prison? Do you think he or, well, or is it equal? Both. I think but I think he I think he is I think he is angry and afraid because he's confronting existential threats he never has. One is reputational and not existential, this issue of his wealth. The yeah. other is the possibility that he en- ends up in jail. And I think you're seeing him in these depositions bob and weave and lie to get away from that. When he said in her deposition that he was never in control of, of the Trump organization yeah. while he was in the White House, nothing, no money moves, no document got signed without yeah. his consent in that company. Uh, Tim O'Brien, thank you, my friend. Always good to see you. Joyce is going to be back in a bit to discuss Supreme Court justice and billionaire wannabe Clarence Thomas. But first, the blind devotion and unwavering loyalty of Trump's allies and supporters is a mystery to most of us. I'll be talking to an expert on dictatorships and autocracy to see if she can shed some light on it all when the readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. That F around and find out chant on January 6, 2021 was led by Proud Boys member Joe Biggs. Well, today it looks like Biggs is in the find out stage for his actions on the 6th. He was sentenced to 17 years in prison for seditious conspiracy. That is well below the 33 years prosecutors were asking for and one year less 
than the longest sentence in any January 6th case so far, received by Oath Keepers leader Elmer Stewart Rhodes. Another proud boy, Zachary Rell, was also sentenced today to 15 years in prison. While former Proud Boys chairman and head of Florida's chapter of Latinos for Trump, Enrique Tario, who's also facing up to 33 years in prison, will be sentenced next week. They all will join the ranks of the countless number of people who are facing the consequences of associating themselves with Donald Trump. And it is worth asking why. I mean, a lot of these people don't even really know him. He's not their friend. He probably wouldn't let most of these people into his clubs if he had a chance. And if they're and yet they are going to spend time in prison because of him, even his actual friends and associates like Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows have had their reputations destroyed or face potentially losing their law licenses because they, too, did Trump's bidding. While Tinata and Carlos de Oliveira, employees at Mar-a-Lago, are now co-defendants in his indictment for stealing classified documents, not to mention his co-defendants in the Georgia indictment, like Harrison Floyd the leader of Black Voices for Trump, who, upon being released on bail from Fulton County Jail, had this to say on Steve Bannon's show, of all places. Part of the Black culture is always voting Democrat. Um, I went against the code, if you will, at the highest order. And so uh, the district attorney decided she wanted to send me uh, what we call as a Negro wake-up call. I am joined now. I, I, I'm joined. Oh, I'm joined now by Temi Dayo Aganga Williams, former senior investigative counsel on the January 6th, January, the House January 6th committee and partner at Splendy Gay Ellsberg LLC and Ruth Ben-Ghiat, NYU professor of history and author of Strongman Mussolini to the president. Thank, thank you very much. I, I'm sorry. I was just shaking my head. Um, Temi Dayo, come on, man. Did you, you, th- th- this is a man who was the only one, this, this gentleman, Harrison Floyd, in Georgia. Black voices for Trump. The only guy who had to sit in that horrible prison, horrible jail, because he couldn't make bail, because he also did another crime, allegedly, uh, assaulting an FBI official. I promise you Donald Trump doesn't know who he is. I guarantee Donald Trump would not have done a fundraiser to raise money to get him out of jail. He had to figure that out on his own. Yet he comes out of that experience seemingly still in the faith. Does it make sense to you as a former prosecutor and just as a black man to see that guy up here saying it's the Negro wake up call for them to indict him for allegedly committing actual crimes for a stranger? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me as as a prosecutor or or as a black prosecutor. But one thing you learn prosecuting crimes is that people have their coming to Jesus moment at different times. And you'll be surprised. You will arrest people sometimes red handed. They got whatever you arrest in their hand and they will lie to you to your face. And I think what, what we're seeing here is that he still hasn't had his actual wake up call. Yeah. Right? He's still, I think, in this delusion that he's doing something right or, or maybe deep down he knows he's doing something wrong. But we see this a lot as prosecutors. And I think with time, when they get a little close to that prison sentence, when it all starts to get a, a lot more real, I guarantee you, you're going to see his tone change. I'm, I'm wondering if Enrique Tario is starting to, you know, maybe see the light a little bit. You know, he, he literally is facing, you know, his cohorts have gotten 17, 18 years. Yeah. Their government has asked for 33. I want to ask you really quickly before I bring Ruth Ben-Ghiat in, what do you make of the fact that prosecutors have been asking for 30 plus years yeah. for these guys. They are consistently getting lowballed on what they were being asked. Joseph Biggs, 33 years, 
it was what the prosecutors wanted. They only got 17. Zachary Rail, 30, got 15. Stuart, El- Stuart Rhodes, who calls himself El- um, Elmer, Stuart Rhodes, 25 years, got 18. D- what do you make of the fact they're all getting much lower than what was asked for? Well, I think it's not only what was asked for, it's what we call the sentencing guidelines. Yeah. So every time anyone gets sentenced, we use a book, you look at all the regulations, and then you tell the judge, everyone agrees, here's what this crime and this conduct should have. Here's the range that courts should consider. Yeah. So what the courts have been doing is going under what the regulations and the rules basically recommend. Here, it was 27 to 33 years. Right. So the government asked for what the rules say. And I think that the court was going under because one of the main reasons what the court wanted consistency with other similarly situated defendants, which means if folks are getting 18, 17 around there, the court wants to not go too far from that. But I think why that's going to be important is that if I'm uh, former President Trump, I'm thinking about that. Those same rules that say you need similar sentences for similar conduct. I think I'm going to be thinking about that because if folks who are the basically the foot soldiers, if those folks are getting 18, 17 years, What's a guy at the top of the pyramid getting? Very interesting. Ruth and Giat, welcome to the show. Uh, I want to ask you, because in my mind, one of the reasons that these people felt confident that they could commit crimes and live stream them and is, is that there has been a permissive environment that has been accorded to people on the right. Right wing Christians have been sort of in a special category. These people have felt that they had the, the license to do it. And historically, uh, white supremacy has been countenanced, lynching, countenance, burning down, uh, you know, uh, and, and overthrowing black led governments during Reconstruction, countenance. And that that's been going on so long that it's hard to now tell people you actually have to live under the law. One new piece of reporting here. Trump campaign aide from New Hampshire, a guy named Dylan Quattrucci, deputy director of Trump's 2024 campaign in New Hampshire. He's on the Capitol on January 6th saying if you're a police officer saying this into camera and you are going to abide by unconstitutional BS, I want you to do me a favor right now. Go hang yourself because you're a piece of S. Go F yourself. These people are literally breaking the law and essentially behaving in terroristic fashion. Because I think they can. Do you think that yeah. the light sentences help contribute to that ad, that ad, that idea? Yeah, they do. But it's it's also really important that they're happening because um, you know the the Proud Boys, for example, is um, a very it's it's growing. It's one of the largest and most violent you know hate groups in the country, and it has a lot of ties with the GOP with. Republicans, local, state, and national level. Um, There was a 2022 study showing that one in five GOP officials had some sympathy or affiliation with some kind of extremist uh, group or organization or belief. And, And so this isn't just about, you know, bigs or one person. This is about the uh, normalization of extremism. And the other thing is that, you know, the special relationship that Trump has, and he came on the scene to energize all racists, to make, uh, to have a big tent, to make all extremists feel like they had a home. And he uses his campaign events as radicalization vehicles. This is really important. That's why we have to be careful how we cover these events. And in 2020, at a campaign debate, uh, Trump mentioned the Proud Boys and their membership surged. So what we're seeing when we have these prosecutions and these sentences, it's also, you know, a strike at this whole culture of extremism that leads up to Trump. 
Why do you think people at such at the low level stay loyal? People like the Waltine Nauras, who have nothing to gain from Trump other than, you know, he's got a job. I'm not sure what he gets paid for it. But even people who've never met Trump, why do they stay loyal? They, he's not going to help them. He doesn't care about uh, them. Why, indeed. Yes. Well, the coming to Jesus moment is, which is, I have examples in my book from around the world. Eventually, these people uh, find out that uh, Trump doesn't care about them, that, in fact, he'd throw them under the bus. He despises them, actually. The demagogue actually despises those who, who worship him because he sees them as weak. And there's these you know, profound psychological dynamics. But the frame for these is not democracy. The frame is authoritarianism. And this is why the GOP, I've been saying this for a while, it, it's, it's an authoritarian party. The, the spectacle of that debate where, you know, almost all of those running against him said that they would support him even if he were a convicted felon. And there's, you know, DeSantis, the, the Florida fascist who looks around and then he raises his hand. This kind of fear and this kind of uh, conformism, you, you usually see that in authoritarian settings, not democratic ones. And, and the, the exit question to you, um, Tammy Dayo. As a prosecutor, you know, do you since there seems to be an endless cycle of these people, Trump can keep just turning out new ones. He's making videos today to try to make sure he gets more recruits. It doesn't seem like there's an end point to this where people wake up and snap out of it. There just seem to be new people every day that are willing to sign up for this anti-democracy club, this gang. Yeah, well, you know, using your term as the gang, I think that's why it's so important to go after the gang leader. I think that's only highlights why the prosecutions, both for Jack Smith and Fannie Willis, could be a paradigm shift. Because when you uh, hold the top of a gang or some other cult or some other criminal enterprise responsible, when you remove that, it makes it easier for that entire structure to crumble. And that's what we may be seeing here. Absolutely. I mean... It's, it's, it's a Crips and Bloods level. He, yeah. This is a gang, and they commit crimes together, which is why I think Fonnie Willis did a brilliant thing to call them what they are. It is a gang. Uh, Temi Dio, Aganga Williams, and Ruth Ben-Giat, thank you both very much. Still ahead, uh, some well-deserved vindication for Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss as, they, as a judge rules that they were defamed by Rudy Giuliani. Their attorney, Ron Von DuBose, joins me next. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday.
The two dedicated Georgia elections workers targeted in Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the 2020 election, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, told the January 6th committee about the ways their lives were upended based on lies for simply doing their civic duty. It's turned my life upside down. Um, I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me. Well, now the aforementioned Rudy Giuliani is about to pay up for his lies after a federal judge ruled Giuliani defamed Freeman and Moss and is liable for damages. A civil trial will be held to determine the amount. I'm joined now by Vaughn DuBose, the attorney currently representing R Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. I'm Mr. DuBose. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I just want to find out how uh, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss are feeling in the wake of this ruling in their favor. They feel good about it. Uh, they feel like this has been vindication, not full vindication, I would say, certainly sure. partial vindication. Uh, there's still more work to be done. Um, the trial phase, as you mentioned, is coming up next. And unfortunately, you can't win your sense of security at trial. So it won't be a full vindication in that sense uh, and restoring them to where they should be. But this was a good development. And they're very happy about what the judge did yesterday. And I can tell you that uh, at least over here, we consider them to be national heroes because anybody who helps folks vote, uh, I would consider that to be other than librarians. Those are my favorite people. Um, let's let's remind everyone what was said about uh, these two wonderful women uh, by Rudy Giuliani in which uh, he defamed them. Sure. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around. USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. What was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. We know that uh, Rudy Giuliani has claimed that he was simply vigorously advocating for his client, Donald Trump, uh, and that he has tried to defend his statements. But has he ever personally apologized uh, to Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss for lying about them? Absolutely not. He has, in fact, doubled down on every opportunity. And we still deal with statements from him, even after the lawsuit, uh, even after he's been found liable. So uh, he has not apologized at all. Uh, let, let's talk about what the judge said. Judge Beryl Howell, um, who did rule in your favor, she said this. She said the bottom line is that Giuliani has refused to comply with his discovery obligations and thwarted plaintiffs Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's procedural rights to obtain any meaningful discovery in the case. Just taking shortcuts to win an election carries as, as winning taking shortcuts to win an election carries risks, even potential criminal liability. Bypassing the discovery process carries serious sanctions, no matter what reservations a non-compliant party may artif try artificially to preserve for appeal. So essentially, is that saying that he just wouldn't comply with discovery at all? That's right. That's exactly what that's saying. You mentioned in your last segment, license, right? That a lot of people feel they have license to do whatever they want. That was obviously the case with Mr. Giuliani as he was before this court. He felt like the discovery rules did not apply to him. 
And Judge Howell said in a very definite and certain way yesterday, yesterday that they absolutely do. He's also trying to cry poverty. Um, the, the judge said the following that, uh, that that Giuliani could not reimburse the attorney's fees. The, the judge, his claims that he cannot reimburse the attorney's fees that he owes your clients were dubious, given that Giuliani was able to pay more than three hundred and twenty thousand dollars to the vendor holding his electronic data, which former President Donald Trump's super PAC reportedly paid had recently listed. And he recently listed his New York City apartment for six point five million dollars and reportedly flew on a private plane to Georgia to surrender to authorities after being indicted there. Um, Giuliani is, I guess, attempting to wriggle out of what he owes your clients by saying he doesn't have any money. Uh, What do you say to those claims, given that he's, you know, selling six point five million dollar apartments? Right. The well, obviously, is not dry. Um, There there are resources at his fingertips. He flew down to Atlanta on a private plane just last week. So we know there are resources after reducing uh, the, 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 the judgment uh, to an actual number in the trial, the next phase will be identifying assets and trying to satisfy that judgment. Uh, I, I, uh, it still hurts my heart when I hear Ruby Freeman saying she lost her reputation and her daughter saying she's afraid to call out, uh, have her name called out or give out her business card. I wonder if that feeling has changed uh, since they have gotten so much support around the country. And I hope they know and feel how much people care about them and, and love what the fact that they stood up for democracy and refused to be intimidated. Uh, is, is there any sense for them that they've feel vindicated and that they don't feel that same sense of pain? Or is it still that that bad for them right now? There is some sense of vindication in, in Judge Howell's ruling yesterday. But at the same time, they still deal with a lot of the fallout from what's happened. Uh, you know, it's particularly difficult to see uh, Rudy Giuliani try to position himself as the victim, yeah. uh, that he's being victimized in this entire process. Uh, I, I've heard people say often that they, they can't believe how far he's fallen and the level that he's fallen to. Well, he didn't fall. He stooped to this level. And it's not sad to see at all. What's sad is what's happened to Ruby and Shay as a result of his intentional lies. And some folks from New York might say he didn't fall at all. He just revealed who he always was. Uh, Von Dubose. Thank you so much. Please pass along our regards uh, to the ladies. And coming up, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas says that he inadvertently omitted luxury gifts and travel paid for by billionaire Harlan Crow on his previous financial disclosures. So what about the new one? Find out next. If you listen to the most vociferous conservative justices on the Supreme Court, ProPublica is nothing but a left-wing funded hack organization engaged in blood sport targeting only the conservative justices. Well, not for nothing, that independent news organization has successfully accomplished what nobody has been able to do when it comes to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, namely accountability. Today, both associate justices released their financial disclosure statements after a 90-day delay. What's in it isn't exactly new, but that is thanks to the dogged reporting of ProPublica. Clarence Thomas amended his past filings, which is an implicit acknowledgement of mistakes, to publicly declare that mega-donor sugar daddy Harlan Crow paid for several luxury trips and flights on a private jet. 
Oh, and he also finally admitted that Harlan Crow bought his mama's house back in 2014, but he's only getting around to reporting that now, nearly 10 years later. The disclosure came after an abnormal six-page screed from his lawyer who defended his client by calling these lapses inadvertent omissions. Sure, Jan. Here's the funny thing. Back in 2011, he also acknowledged that he inadvertently omitted 13 years of information about who his wife was working for. Both justices left the liability sections blank, although I would argue dishonesty and dubious ethical standards seems like a big old liability to me. Joyce Vance is back with me. Uh, What's the significance here? Because Clarence Thomas and his lawyers and everything are claiming and insisting that he didn't break any laws or violate any rules. He just didn't have to disclose it until now. Does that sound credible to you? Right. So he argues two things. One, as you've pointed out, Joy, is inadvertent disclosures. I just, for whatever reason, made a mistake. I'm human. Um, Repeatedly. And then the second part of it is this notion that he wasn't required to report some of these quote-unquote personal hospitality trips until the rules for reporting changed this year in the wake of all of these disclosures. Um, Technically, he might have a point. Practically, the issue is who is prepared to do anything about this, right? Did, did these justices, I would include Justice Alito, too, who did not disclose everything that one uh, might think any other government employee would have disclosed. Is anyone willing to take this up? Will there be some sort of formal sanction? Will the court acknowledge that there have been past sins and recommit to doing it better in the future? Might DOJ investigate? In the absence of any true systemic accountability, you can say that these folks will just sort of breathe a sigh of relief, uh, be happy that they got away with it and go on their merry way because they have life tenure. The thing about it is, you know, what, what's one of the many things that's galling about this, Joyce, is these are people who are writing rulings that tell us that if uh, that, you know, that tell us whether you can have bodily autonomy, whether or not you can have an abortion. Um, they're going to write our tax rules for billionaires. They get to decide a lot of stuff. But we're supposed to believe that they're not smart enough to figure out that they have to disclose trips from their billionaire friends. And then they try to write it off as, well, these are just our friends. Does anyone on earth believe that Harlan Crow would take Clarence Thomas out on trips if he wasn't on the Supreme Court? And if Clarence Thomas were to retire from the Supreme Court, then he would keep taking him on trips because it doesn't get anything out of that. It's the court that gives them the access to the billionaires. So it it galls me. But you as a former prosecutor, as somebody who's holding people to the rule of law, does it gall you as much as me that they're acting like, well, we just don't know what we're doing when we fill out forms? So I'm going to say that I'm at least on a par with you, Joy, if not more upset by this, because the reality is judges and especially Supreme Court justices have a special obligation to all of us to make sure that their behavior is literally unimpeachable, that they are so careful that they don't draw close to any ethical lines. They stay far back from them for exactly the reasons that you identify, because our trust in the judiciary is essential to having a functioning constitutional republic. And so these judges not only violated the rules, they seem to be unabashed by those violations. They've only come forward with this new reporting because they've been forced to. They don't seem committed to not sinning in the future. I think Justice Thomas, for instance, still has not formally disclosed payments that were made for his nephew's education, although they've been widely reported on. 
at a bare minimum, what, what we need from the justices is a commitment to follow the same rules that every other federal judge follows. You'll recall that they're not cabined. Their behavior is not controlled by any of the rules that apply to other federal judges. That would seem to be a minimal starting point, given what we now know about past conduct. Or, or, or to city council people, you know, who have more rules than they do. There's also the weird sort of print, little princes club. John Eastman, among those vouching for Clarence Thomas, 112 people uh, identified as his former law clerk, Laura Ingraham, that's on, on the Fox, is also a former law clerk. John Yu, a lot of people, I don't know if she signed it. But you've got that. You've got the fact that Thomas's wife is an insurrectionist. You've got the fact that Alino is writing angry screeds in the Wall Street Journal and giving angry interviews. They... Is there a, 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 a history before these particular justices of this kind of flagrant, blatant behavior that also seems to me to be spitting in the face of the people that they get to regulate? So I think that there have been problems before. Notably, Justice Fortas had to step down in the middle of a scandal. There have been other sorts of issues. The problem with this one is that it's systemic. The court lacks ethics rules, lacks formal disclosure rules like every other federal employee, like what I had to disclose when I was a United States attorney, but also when I was a line prosecutor. And so that's what we need. We need a systemic response to a systemic problem. Indeed. Joyce Vance, thank you. Uh, Thank you for sticking around. We really appreciate you. And we'll be right back. That's tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.